The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I was planning on posting a brand new episode today, but I had a tragic technological mishap. And so instead, I bring you a really excellent, very striketober-relevant episode from our archives. It's my 2019 discussion with organizer and author Jane McAlevey. We have a lot more listeners now than we did two and a half years ago, so I imagine that many of you listening now have not heard this one yet. Okay, before we get rolling, I do hope that you consider supporting The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. That is how we put out the show every week or, well, almost every week unless I fuck up like this week. Anyhow, we have an amazing new weekly newsletter for those of you who contribute any amount on Patreon. The newsletter is also available on our website. But if you want that newsletter emailed to you every week, and I think that you do, you must support The Dig at patreon.com slash The Dig. A contribution of any amount at all is just fine, though contributions of $10 or more will get you a book or books or tote bag or a mug sent to you in the mail. Anyhow, please donate. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. All right, here is my interview with Jane McAlevey, first posted on March 27th, 2019. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. The strike is back, and big time. Teachers in particular have been walking off the job, not only to demand higher wages, but to fight for an end to privatization and for a transformation of the educational system for their students and communities. These strikes, often led by women, are no doubt inspiring, and they have won important victories for workers and the people that they serve. We are, in other words, heading in the right direction. But as of now, we're not heading there even close to fast enough. Winning working-class power is not only necessary to meet people's immediate material needs, 
It is necessary to accomplish a profound democratization of this country, which is what we must do if we are to implement a just energy transition that heads off what scientists have determined to be imminent climate catastrophe. Today, I'm talking about the labor movement in general and the power of the strike in particular with Jane McAlevey, an organizer, author, and scholar whose books include Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and two forthcoming books from Echo Harper Collins and Verso Books. Jane McAlevey, welcome to The Dig. It's great to be here. I want to start with a somewhat obvious and really basic question, but one that is really important to explain before we get to everything else we're going to discuss. Why is the strike the most important of all labor actions? You know, at some fairly simple level, what I was taught um, heading into my first strike many, many years ago by my mentors was if workers were capable of creating a crisis for capital, for corporations, then ultimately workers could fundamentally change the terms of the conditions under which they work and live. And there is nothing that allows, in a capitalist system, there is nothing that allows the working class or workers to have more power than their capacity to create a crisis. I mean, some people talk about strikes you know, as stopping production, as this and as that, and all these technical terms. And my mentors were like, look, can you create a crisis that's unbearable for the employer or not? If you can, you're going to win. If you can't, you're going to win something less. At some very basic level in a system called capitalism, but really in any system where the concept of production, and by production, I mean, that could be, you know, a nurse going to work, right, and producing a service. Anytime that you can actually create a really significant crisis for corporations and capital in the state, workers can win and win a lot. And I think um, there's a lot of evidence to that throughout all of history. So that we go through these long periods where our most powerful tool is sort of removed from the arsenal for any number of reasons, we wind up, you know, coming back to the moment we're in now, which is, you know, a new Gilded Age functionally where political inequality mirrors the level of income inequality that we have. And it's totally outrageous. So yeah, to me, a strike is, can you, can you, can you seriously create a crisis for capital? And you can see the difference between a hundred percent out strike in a place like LA and something far less than that, right? If you just do a simple comparison and like, what do people win when they have a really serious strike versus what do they win when they don't? And it's, it's a pretty straightforward equation. And even short of an actual strike, It's the queen of all labor actions because the power of any other effective labor tactic that I can think of rests upon the potential of the strike, but the potential of the withdrawal of labor. Totally does. And then the the sort of corollary, what's interesting is I never get sucked into debates about, you know, do politics matter? Like, look, obviously we have Donald Trump, you know, (laughs) enough already. Like, yes, politics matters, right? Like, that's always a stupid debate in the left. The question is, what prepares you for politics? What's the real political education? And what's the structure test that allows you to know, right, if you need two things? One is radical political education. Two, if you're going to dive into politics, 
<laughs> you better be able to win, just like a strike. So the point is, a strike is the best form of political education. If you're going to get involved in politics, which I think it's obviously urgent that we do that as a movement, as a progressive movement, as a left, whatever the broader we are in any conversation, we have to do it effectively. We have to do it to win. I have zero interest in getting involved in any goddamn thing to lose. Like it's not, I wake up in the morning thinking like, how do we build solidarity? How do we build structure? How do we win? Not how do we have a perfect position? Although we can have them too, right? But like, so if we're going to get into politics, which we need to do, we have to get into it with two things behind us before we get to the polls. One is radical political education so that when people go to the polls, they're entirely clear about who they're pulling the lever for and why. And then secondly, we have to have the level of organization that's going to produce a victory. If we decide to roll hard in an election, we need to be rolling hard to win. So super majorities and a tight structure and clarity about who's to blame for the shit in workers' lives are all things that get produced by a really good strike. So to me, it's strikes and elections. It's strikes and politics. It's not politics and not strikes. It's not strikes and not politics. It's like they go together like peanut butter and jelly for fuck's sake. You know what I mean? Really. <laughs> you write and just said that strikes like politics have to be high participation to win. What does a high participation strike look like? And what is a high participation organization? How does it get built? How does that high participation organization build towards the high participation strike? In other words, why is the strike what you call the ultimate structure test? When I was taught young by very smart mentors in the old 1199, uh, you know, sort of the 1199 before it merged into the giant SEIU machine, I was taught that we can't win a strike uh, essentially in the service sector in the U.S. absent at least 90% of the workers walking. That's a night, so we have a 90% rule. That's a supermajority. A supermajority actually, if I'm doing a structure test, and we'll talk about them because I think that's what you're trying to get at and why I think the strike is the ultimate one. But, you know, supermajorities, I start calling something a supermajority at about 80%. Like when there's 80% of workers participating in any given workplace or any given structure, which is what a workplace is, right? It's a structure. At the point at which we're at about 80%, we're at supermajorities. But, but to hit strike level and to hit a strike that's going to produce the kind of victories that are life-changing, not, not low victories, right? Life-changing contract victories, which is what they just had in LA, and we could go through a whole bunch of them. But if you want a life-changing contract, you're going to have to be at at least 90%. You have to, you have, to have 90% of the workers ready to walk to cause a very significant crisis for any employer. So how, how do you know that you're going to have 90% or more or north of 90% when you walk out? This is the difference between, I think, experience and a lack of experience. So experience organizers are taught at some point that we have to do a series of what we call structure tests. And structure tests are literally how we begin to, if I'm a paid organizer, how we begin to teach workers themselves what it means to be strike ready. So if I understand my job, which is how I understand my job is to be a teacher or a coach, that's what I think of an organizer as, then I have to coach the workers, a whole bunch of workers, how they get themselves ready for a strike because they're the only ones who can make the decision to go on strike. So the first thing I'm going to say is, look, you've got to be at supermajorities to win in the United States. I just came back from three weeks in Germany. Okay, they can strike whole units of a hospital. We can't do that. They can win on that. That's a different social context. But in this country, and increasingly, I think, elsewhere, 
we have to have supermajority strikes to really win and to win big. So what it's predicated on several things. One is that you have what we call a leader, an organic leader or a leader uh, focused approach to organizing in the workplace. And I'm going to distinguish that a leader approach from an activist approach. So an activist approach is where you spend most of your time talking to the workers who come to your meetings and who want to talk to you. The low-hanging fruit. Yeah, you can easily get to 30%. Like, this is the mistake baby organizers make. Like, you can ease, or young activists make. Like, you can, you'll start feeling good because you can easily, in my opinion, get to 30% or 35% participation with not much effort in most workplaces. About a third of the workers are just pissed off. And then getting the next sort of 30% gets a hell of a lot harder. And then getting your final 30%, you know, is another serious level of work. So, so how do you know you're doing that? One is you have to recruit what we call the most respected leader, the informal leader, the organic leader. These are people with no titles, no positions. They're not sort of, they don't fit the mold of what we think of as like the charismatic leader for sake of argument. They can be the quietest worker. They can be super quiet. They can be mousy. They can be all sorts of things that don't fit. And thus they might not stick out to the outsider immediately. They may not talk loud. They may not talk back to the boss. They may not do all the things that people mistakenly look for when they're looking for someone to sort of carry the water in a unit or a facility or a shift or a school or a plant or wherever they are. Um, And that's, it's just wrong on, on its face. So you have to look for the worker that the workers respect. That's a leader focused approach to what I call, you know, deep organizing versus an activist approach to a sort of mobilizing model. So, so continue this through to how do we get to super majorities? Because this is how we get to it, right? So first we put a lot of time on the front end and they're trying to figure out who are these one, two, or three informal leaders, the workers who carry the most respect of their coworkers in each, you know, if it's, I've been doing a lot of work in healthcare, so I'm looking for it by shift, by unit, by you want to go for work areas, right? Who's the most respected work leader, worker leader in a work area. And then once you start to identify them, let's fast forward, assume that you get to, you think you've got basically, you know, a key leader or two, if there's, if it's a big unit in each, in each unit, in each shift, and then you begin to do what we call structure tests. You begin to do a lot of hand signed, nothing digital here. This is not social media, not a computer generated. These are hand signed because what you're doing is you're testing, you're testing workers' relationships, you're testing the power structure relationships among and between the workers in every workplace, because there's always a power structure. I mean, that's functionally what I'm talking about is how do you come to analyze and understand the informal power structure in the workplace? And let me tell you something, people who think that's weird or that's something, any good boss is doing it every day of the week. Like when I wrote Raising Expectations, my first book, some people were like, ooh, you shouldn't talk about that stuff because then the bosses will read it. You know, my answer to that is like, are you effing kidding me? Like every smart boss and every smart boss fight I've ever been in, which is quite a few, by the way, knows exactly what good organizers know, right? They, they understand how to assess the power relationship. That's what they pay the consultants for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what the high-paid consultants make their money for, to do, to do a similar analysis. Um, of the workplace, we're just better at it, and we naturally can win more because most workers, if we do our work right, actually break <laughs> with each other. On the side of the working class that's, that they're a part of. <laughs> yeah, that's actually the real truth. So uh, I hate to tell the bosses that, but that's why I don't mind writing many of this in books, because if we do our work right, we win. So so we start to do these structure tests, and they're, what's interesting to me since No Shortcuts came out is, I think I talked a lot about it in Raising Expectations, but I didn't use... I did it more as storytelling, right? And then in no shortcuts, I'm trying to like give it the words we use in organizing campaigns. So structure tests is the, are the two words that I say one are like 
my favorite words in the English language, right? Or leader ID and structure test. I'm not kidding. And then maybe supermajority is the third. But and then and then what? And then people always say to me, that structure test concept is so interesting. And what's interesting to me is how not well known it is in the left, like at all. It's shocking to me all the time. I think, oh, that's why we're losing. So the people who, yeah, the people who trained me, um, uh, trained me to understand at a very young age that we never take any significant action until we've structure tested and structure tested and structure test any given workplace and until the workers themselves have built what we call unity and a tight, effective structure. What's important, again, if we're trying to build a mass movement in the working class, the working class themselves have to understand how to do this. There will never be enough you know, sort of paid people running around in our movement. And so, and this is part of why in the 1930s, right, left political parties made the decision to go into the workplace so that people were being paid as they did their work. It's a great idea for today too, but either way, whether you're going into a workplace or whether you're playing the role that I've largely played in my life, which is coming in on the outside, either way, the principles of the work aren't any different. Workers, workers themselves have to come to understand um, how to do this work. And to me, it doesn't matter if I'm coming in outside the workplace or if I'm inside the workplace. I have a set of principles and a set of methods that the workers themselves need to learn. And the key is how they build unity and solidarity because the boss will be sowing division. And then how do they build a really tight, effective workplace structure? Because you can't win a hard fight without a lot of solidarity, the kind of solidarity that we call unbreakable solidarity, meaning it will hold no matter what the boss says or does in the most intense part of the fight, and a really tight, effective structure that's also going to hold. And so in order to exercise our strongest muscle, which is our ultimate structure test, which is the strike, it is the ultimate structure test because it's high risk, right? It means that workers are ready to take high risk. And if we've done our structure tests right, and we have increased the risk factor as we've done each structure test, then we don't ever call a strike unless we know we're ready. Like we know we're hundred percent ready when we call a strike. And I would argue that that's exactly what just ha happened in the Los Angeles teachers strike. They did eight structure tests, count them eight. Wow. I've just written them all out for the closing chapter of the book I'm writing. And I, I do get frustrated by some of the coverage of L.A. or any of the, you know, significant strikes we've been having because, especially L.A., because there's, there's a lot of, like, um, romanticized glorification, you know, of sort of like the Red for Ed teachers rising up stuff. And while that's true, it's also true that in L.A., where anyone paying attention knew we were going to have a much harder fight, much stiffer odds, much more sophisticated employer you know, millions of dollars of charter school money um, fighting against the Democrats like we did with Chicago, right, in Chicago teacher strike. I mean, the irony is that the two hardest strikes, the two strikes that required the most serious preparation in order to win were Chicago and Los Angeles against two big Democratic Party machines, right? <laughs> so, but like in order, in order for them to pull off Chicago, Right. I mean, the the irony is always that effective organizing, yeah, covers up its own tracks. Yeah. So I've just written about all the structure tests, all the very painstaking, very laborious work that was done 
from the time that the Union Power Slate won in 2014 to when they hired their first organizing director, to when they began to build the organizing department. And I write about, you know, what I call the interaction between sort of left and smart and progressive rank and filers and then very experienced organizers. And it is, it's that interaction that we have to drill into more in order to win serious strikes, one, and then two, to carry that kind of momentum and participation into the electoral arena, if people think they want Bernie Sanders to win or whoever they want to win in some local race, you've got to test your precinct structure as much as you've got to test a workplace structure. And you've got to build as much unity and solidarity in a tight precinct structure as you do to get ready for a strike. So for an organizer, same, same, man. It's the same skill set. And it's frightening to me how few people understand how to do it at this point in our movement, right? It's like I, I say in a shortcut somewhere that the skill goes with the ideology, to be perfectly honest. So when the ideology of left progressive radical politics was wiped out of the trade union movement, the skill went with it. And I think people don't understand that they're, they're hand in hand. If you believe in small d democratic progressive radical trade unionism, by definition, you believe in a high participation model. There are these people I meet, you know, uh, who call themselves leftists who don't believe in high participation. You know, and to me, that's like, uh, I don't know, you're definitely not my movement. (laughs) Like, the ideology of radical, small d democratic trade unionism is literally hand in hand with the methods um, of leader ID, structure tests, and building towards really high participation. In my opinion, you can't pretend to be into like small d democracy and not wake up every single morning trying to figure out what am I going to do today that's going to teach the workers how to build unity, solidarity, and a tight structure. That's literally like a daily obsession for an organizer. Well, it's no accident that the master CIO organizer whose book you quote in your structure test article in Catalyst was a communist who was ultimately purged. Yes, exactly right. And died with a broken heart shortly after. Uh, I think literally died with a broken heart from what I can from what I can tell. I actually as a result of that article and I could follow up with him, but I actually got a I got I got reached out to by his family, wow. his living family still. Um and I was really touched by that. Um they were like, Wow, we haven't seen something like this in a long time. So that's gonna be a follow up. But but I think he broke I think the purge led to um a, a broken spirit. And, you know, we don't we can't do that. Like we just we can't rep you know, like the question for me right now, too, for, for, for a Jacobin kind of audience is how do we not wind up in the situation we wound up in in this country coming out of the 30s and 40s and into the 50s? Like, how do we, how can we be smart enough? How can we do the love? How can we do inoculation? How can we, what, can, what and how can we do it differently? I mean, this is a much deeper question, but like, how and what can we do it in a way that doesn't set people up uh, to be purged? And, I think that's a really important question, probably for a different day, uh, because right now people have to learn how to run 100% out strikes <laughs> and win elections, you know. But like that's that question of how, with the excitement we have today, workers are starting to be more willing to strike right now in America because they're watching workers strike and win, right? Yeah. And workers workers decide to strike when they see other workers striking and winning. You argue that the labor movement needs to prioritize organizing workers in core sectors of the economy, including healthcare, education, and logistics. My question is, why is it important to prioritize core sectors? And what is it that makes those sectors that you identify the core ones? Is it 
about them being workplaces where workers are particularly amenable to being organized or because those industries are strategic for structural reasons for building labor power in the larger capitalist political economic order? So let's start with the first question. Why does it matter for us to think about core industries? And we just don't have the resources to do everything at once. We just don't literally have the resources to do everything equally good at once. I mean, point out a movement to me that didn't have to set serious priorities that, you know, point out a, point out a movement in our history um, that won really substantial structural changes that didn't have to make hard priorities at some point. I'm waiting for someone to show me that, you know what I mean? Because it's not out there. So every day in our work lives, like every person who considers themselves every, a leftist, a progressive, a radical, anyone who wants to be effective, like we have to set priorities in our life every day. I mean, I make a work plan every single day. And the days that I don't have a work plan, um, I get less done, right? So it's like, our movement has to have a work plan. Our movement has to have a power analysis and a strategy. And from that, we have to pick priorities. So that's always been true. And part of what I try and say in that article in Catalyst is every time we've been really successful, you can look back and there was a set of strategic discussions and a power analysis about why we selected the industries we selected. Or in the case of the you know, black power civil rights movement, we picked you know, the black church as an institution and we picked several you know, if you even do an analysis of like in which cities and in which states during the civil rights movement, they were more effective versus less effective. There was a series of factors and real criteria that went into, you know, why a bus boycott would work well in one city versus it was a total flop in another. And people hadn't thought it really out very well in places where it was a flop, right? They didn't have the right conditions, which was lots of people relying on um, the help of black people, no other way to get to work. I mean, so literally there are priorities and factors that I think a lot of casual activists or, or new people, new people new to the field just haven't thought through yet, right? So set priorities, period, like every day, every week, every year, every month, and for the movement. I spent a lot of time teaching young staff. This is true to this day. And I spend a lot of time teaching young staff how to make a work plan. And I'm not kidding. And a lot of the young staff say to me, well, no one's ever slowed down enough to teach me how to make a work plan. And guess what? It's the same thing the movement has to do, like learn to have a work plan because we're more effective when we do it. And I'm serious about winning and you can't be serious about winning if you're just like waking up and blathering, you know, all day long with no work plan. So that's one. And the movement needs a set of priorities and a set of core industries. So then why I'm so obsessed with healthcare education and logistics, again, it reflects my belief that we have to choose some core industries. And then why them? Okay, logistics seems more obvious, so I'm just going to get that one over with quickly. The world of global trade, and I feel like Kim Moody, I mean, lots of people have written a lot of good stuff about logistics. Like, to interrupt global trade, um, we need to take control of logistics, the logistics sector, train lines, ports, you know, people who deliver every package, all of it. Every ounce of logistics is super strategic in a globalized system where speed has somehow become like a, an obsession in the consumer process. So that's one um, very effective way to get control of the, some of the biggest capitalist players right now is if we could really get control of the logistics sector. But then there's related and different reasons why I think education and healthcare matter so much. One is that our density is such, meaning the percentage of workers who are in unions is so so appallingly low right now. It's so abysmally low that we have to move fast, right? Let me just 
throw the word climate crisis in here. I mean, please. I've always felt like I I get up in the morning with a sense of urgency, right? I mean, that's that's the quality of organizers is that like you both you have to be able to create a sense of urgency and. Um, and we just wake up with one every morning, right? It's like, Jesus Christ, there's a lot going wrong. Like, what are we doing today to be effective? So the climate crisis does, in fact, make me personally, and I think many people feel, an even greater sense of urgency. Yeah, yeah. That's why education and healthcare matter, because when we organize well in the education and healthcare sector, we are bringing along, I think it's like a one to 10. I'm going to actually try and do the math on this seriously soon, but like, for every worker we're bringing along, we're bringing along like 10 or 20 or 25 additional humans in a serious way into the structure of the fight because we're bringing their families, um, in the case of education, the students, the parents, and the broader community, like people who have future children coming, faith communities, right? The whole broader community is coming in the education fight. It's the same in healthcare. And so if we understand we have priorities, I'm going to pick sectors where if I do one good fight, we're going to change the entire terms and conditions for hundreds of thousands of people. In Chicago, they literally transformed the way at least a half a million, if not a million people on, on a bad day thought about power in Chicago, after yeah. the Chicago Teachers Union. When I went to Chicago to do interviews, I would have um, a Chicago Teachers Union baseball cap or t-shirt or just carrying the contract in my hand, and I'd be on a you know, the subway or a bus line going to meet with some workers to do a debrief after the strike and do some interviews. And people in the general population in Chicago would stand up and first ask if I was a teacher. And I'd say, no, I'm just writing about them. And they'd be like, damn, because we would have applauded you. I mean, <laughs> and the same thing is happening in Los Angeles. Like I, to me, a, a measure of the success and why education and healthcare matter so much is, you know, I woke up in a hotel, I don't know, whatever it was, the week that they won in Los Angeles, several mornings. And the morning of the victory, when I went downstairs at like 5 a.m. to get a cup of tea, there were two, you know, early morning, like a cleaner and a, uh, someone who was getting the breakfast sort of set up ready in this little hotel. And I said, hey, you know, did you hear? Because the news was on, like the TV was running. I said, hey, do you know, did you hear about the teachers winning? And they said, yeah. And they literally said, yeah, and I hear that they won a school nurse and a guidance counselor for the schools. Wow. So that's hotel workers talking about the thing that mattered most to them, that the teachers won for and with their students, right? It's just, it's profound. So that's why, and then we have to do the work right, right? We have to do it the way they did in LA and Chicago, et cetera. Like we have to be, we have to embed in the community. We have to have a broader set of social demands and social goals going into every strike. And that's just healthcare and education make that easy. We're fighting for a better education system. We're fighting for a better healthcare system. We can bring millions more people into literally into the fight with us in those two sectors. And we, we need to move fast and we can move fast in those sectors. It really highlights this powerful public interest nexus that they have that allows for this this powerful community oriented social unionism that we've seen in LA and Chicago with teachers that so clearly highlights what's true of workers in general, but is just more obviously and patently there in yeah. these sectors where that the interests of these particular workers and the larger communities within which those workers are embedded are just cl so clearly conjoined in those cases. Absolutely. And, and again, look, and we know this from the from the you know 1968 from the teacher strike. Like th th there there are plenty of unions 
who can screw up an education in a healthcare fight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we just had the 50th anniversary last year of that yeah, screw up. <laughs> right. Right. So it isn't, it isn't like just, just because they're education and healthcare sectors, that means it's all going to be as good as LA, Chicago, West Virginia. You know what I mean? But, but the point is it can be. And as someone who's run a lot of healthcare strikes, ours don't tend to get, they don't get the same headlines because the scale isn't the same. Like even if we're striking either one city or we're striking one employer, you know, meeting across a few hospitals, you know, we get to thousands. And in the case of my very first one, my very first, my second strikes, which were in the the largest nursing home strike in American history. Okay. We had 77, we had 9,000 out, but like 77 nursing homes, Connecticut, Rhode Island, right back in the late 1990s. But so that, that was and still is the biggest nursing home strike ever, but still that only got us to about 9,000 workers across two states. Now, believe me, we created a crisis. But even, even the kernels of my very first serious strike experience, again, 1999, 1998, in those early strikes that were large scale and we were striking several employers and we were striking the state, frankly, right, to force a funding issue. So very similar. Like we understood we had to create a crisis across two states in the legislature every day, not just for the bosses to release greater Medicaid money so that we could have a better health care system in the long-term care um, world. So that's two and a half decades ago. And from those very first strikes that I had the pleasure of being involved in in a really serious way, we understood in the many months leading up to the, in the strike preparation, right, we were doing lots of structure tests, all the same stuff I'm talking about today, leader ID, structure test, structure test, increase the risk factor, are the workers ready to strike, right, we're trying to get 77 nursing homes ready to strike, like, so as we're doing that, we're also simultaneously engaging with work, you know, we're, we're doing what we call comprehensive charting, we're figuring out what churches, mosques, temples, synagogues, little leagues, what parent-teacher associations, education, you know, where, what every single connection the workers had, what was it, how could, how, could we, how could we get the workers to come to understand that they had to lead their community into the struggle for better health care because we understood the boss message right away, you know, in a health care strike, just like an education strike, but a little bit more profound is like, wow, you're abandoning your patients what a shit you are, right? That's what the boss says to them. And what the workers always know to say is, yeah, no, what we're doing is actually standing up for our patients because we're fighting for a better system. Because the bosses win when they're able to abstract workers out of the public. The public becomes something that somehow doesn't include the workers. That's absolutely right. And and again, not not everyone in the House of Labor quite gets this, no matter what sector they're in. But but the point is, where if we can marry progressive rank-and-file visionary trade union leadership with getting some experienced organizers in these three sectors, we can have a revolution pretty quickly. What about the gender and racial components to this? Is it just a happy or interesting coincidence that many of these workers in core sectors are women and that many in many hospital workers are people of color from immigrant backgrounds? And this is also true, of course, for teachers in major urban districts, not as much in other districts. Or does that fact reveal something important about what labor struggle looks like in today's American capitalism? It does, it does reveal something interesting about what labor struggle is going to look like today. Um, and I also personally, since it, the two sectors I've worked the most in, I mean, I've worked with other kinds of workers, right? In my early years, when I worked as a senior organizer for the AFL-CIO, I worked with all kinds of workers, but most of my life work has been education and healthcare. And they're both female um, heavy and people of color heavy. And I can't think of better workers um, to work with on uh, a daily basis in terms of one, a set of workers who deeply own 
and understand without a lot of political education required that that when we're fighting for a decent day at work, we're fighting for the whole community. It's a more natural understanding, I think, for women that they understand since it's usually still in a highly gendered patriarchy, it's usually still women who are more focused on, you know, getting the kid to school in the morning and getting whatever, whatever, like if they're healthcare workers. So women just understand that there is not this hard line between the workplace and home. In fact, it's a very soft line. It's if it's a line at all at this point. So to do what I call whole worker organizing, some people call bargaining for common good, you know, these are all the versions of just what we did in the 1930s, which was damn good organizing with social demands that brought the whole community in, right? Whatever, whatever label someone's giving it today, it's all a derivative of the best organizing possible, which means we're prioritizing that workers understand how to win in the workplace and that they understand that in order to win in the workplace and at home, they have to bring the whole community into the struggle with them. And I just think women of color get that pretty damn naturally, um, based on a lifetime of struggle. I mean, Jesus, every time you walk out the door in this country as a woman of color, it's like you're confronted with how many forms of oppression at once smacking you in the face. So it does not take long. Like if I'm in a conversation with a woman of color getting ready for a strike and it's, we're a few months out and we're in a tough contract fight. And I say to folks, it's probably the time that we have to start to systematically bring the ministers, the religious leaders, the faith leaders, the community, we have to get folks, you know, brought up to speed with how hard this struggle has been. It's time for you to start doing some education with the low-level political members of your community and the faith-based community. And we're going to start, to, we're going to prioritize that too, by the way, right? Everything has a priority attached to it. So who are we prioritizing when we start to do the outreach in the broader community? But like, there is no pushback when I'm working with women, largely, and women of color, certainly. Whereas I will say there are people who I've worked with, different kind of workers, where it's like, okay, and here's what, here, and hey, it's probably time for us to think about how do we get the community involved? And, you know, they're like, you know, my place of worship is private. Yeah, this is, I have this, I have this hard division between my public life and my private life. That's an artifact of the culture of the capitalist order we live in. Yes, that's right. And I just think it's, it's a way less, it's, it's, it's not a lift at all. And if it is a lift, it's not a hard lift in a women-centered part of the economy. And it's the same reason why they can powerfully bring their whole communities along, not just, not just to support them, but to go through profound, radical political education about who's to blame for the crisis that we're in. That's, that's what I took away riding on public buses and trains in Chicago after the strike and then being in Los Angeles after the strike, that same feeling that the whole working class just changed, not just the workers involved in that fight. And that is what we need, and we need it desperately, and we need it fast, and we need it now. You write that strikes are the, quote, most effective form of mass political education. And I think that has really important implications for how we think about politics more generally as well. Explain how you've seen strikes develop organizers who can then bring their skills and militancy into other fights, whether in the community or political or whatever, and also to what degree it works the other way too, with community activists radicalized in non-labor campaigns who then bring that into the labor movement. Just right to the point we were just talking about, right? How do we get experience? How do we become more and more experienced at the work, which is how we get better and better at it, hopefully. So what the beauty of strikes is they're hard. Um, and so if we're doing our work right, if we're actually coaching and teaching 
thousands and tens of thousands of workers along the way for what it takes to do this, it means that we're literally building a small army. I mean, Los Angeles just built an army, right? There's the sheer amount of leadership development that happened from day one of the strike until the end of the strike among the 34,000 um, education workers, yeah. it, you know, is shockingly high value. So um, I, I just tell a story. It's a good example of this. In Back in, in Sanford, Connecticut, in the very earliest direct organizing campaigns that I was leading and, you know, doing some experiments about how do we bring in broad social issues, et cetera, um, Marie-Pierre and Joan Fang, there were these two leaders in Cortland Gardens in one specific nursing home where we had a very hard boss fight. It was Vencore, which became Kindred, or Kindred became Vencore, and now it's 12 other LLCs later. You know, it's a hedge fund, <laughs> piece of shit company owner that owns, you know, thousands of nursing homes in America, and they have a cute little community name, and so you think it's Cortland Gardens Nursing Home in Little Corner, Stanford, Connecticut. It's the same idea behind uh, App- Applebee's, your neighborhood bar and grill, or whatever their tagline is. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. But, you know, literally. So it's this giant multinational corporation in Kentucky that's that was famous. I just, the only reason I identified it as Vencore is anyone who knows about them historically. It's like they were famous union busters, right? They had the best union busters in the country. So going up against them and Genesis and a few others in that era. But like, so, you know, there's Marie Pierre and Joan Fang. They go through a really hard boss fight. They unionize their nursing home. There's typically about 160 workers in a nursing home. So 160 of them in a smaller clip, like go through a hard fight. They win. They win the LRB election. We're near the end of the first contract negotiations, and these are two amazing leaders in the actual nursing home fight, right, to unionize, and they're leaders in the negotiations, and they come into negotiations, and they have a letter in their hand, and they say this was put under everyone's doors, and, you know, I remember, yeah, they live in the same big housing development in the, you know, in a working-class part of the city, and they bring in these letters, and they're like, everyone got these under their doors, we're not sure what they are, you know, can you help us, you know, and it's like a letter written in, like, five-point font, meant to be illegible and unreadable by anybody, let alone uh, recent immigrants (laughs) from um, Haiti and Jamaica. And I said, yeah, you know, we'll look at, we'll get the lawyers to look at it later. So I put it in my briefcase, you know, fast forward in the story. um, It's the beginning of the notification of the, of the massive gentrification that's going to start in the region, although we stopped it. So that was good. But so it's the beginning of what the mayor and the, and the elite think they're going to start to do, which is bulldoze uh, seven giant whole communities within Southern Connecticut to begin to make room for more high rises and for condos and studios for young white guys to work in the Swiss retrading floor and whatnot back then. So literally the, you know, we were like, okay, so fast forward. So we go to them and say, okay, so you know what to do. We're going to coach you, but you just did it. So you have to door knock the entire housing complex. You have to do leader identification in, you know, it's multiple dwellings, right? It's a bunch of u- big units in this big, beautiful um, modern income housing development that the nursing home workers, a lot of them lived in. And that's where I began to really see like a skilled fighter who learns her skill in her workplace struggle is at such a high level because the boss fight was so hard that Marie Pierre and Joan Fang with very little coaching, they were like, no, but we don't have to do it. We need help. And I was like, no, no. Okay. Remember that thing? We start with majority petitions. You're going to knock on every door. We're going to start with a simple petition and you're going to have a demand and you're going to be recruiting people to turn out for a meeting and you're going to go one-on-one on the doors and you're going to recruit your best activists who want to get involved as you go and you're going to have a really good rap and a message, and you're going to call for a big meeting, and you're going to be getting people to sign up as you go, and you're going to do I Commit to Be There. And like all the things that good organizers do, suddenly, you know, Marie-Pierre and Joan Fang could just do all of it. And so they really did organize the Oak Park development, and 
me and a couple organizers showed up at the first big meeting to like coach and sit in the background and watch them. And we helped them think through their meeting agenda. That was true. You know, and before long, they stopped the demolition of their housing unit. Wow. And it took very little, quote unquote, community organizer or staff union organizer or any outside help because these sisters had just been through a hell of a boss fight. So they were ready and skilled to take a fight into their community and block the demolition of their housing, which they did. It's still there today. It's an incredible victory. You know, we went on to stop the entire gentrification plan of a small city. So because the workers were skilled up through a very hard fight and and ultimately what was a strike to win their contract, they were second to none going out and leading the anti-demolition campaign in the community. That's why we fight hard. That's why it matters to teach the workers themselves how to do the work. You've been critical of the Fight for 15 campaign to organize fast food workers because they, quote, lack the power of the collective withdrawal of labor. And indeed, it's pretty clear that the campaign was not very successful at organizing actual unions and individual fast food franchises. And so as a result, they were clearly limited in building sustained power for fast food workers. But on the other hand, the movement did help put $15 an hour at the center of the political debate, which has led to big minimum wage hikes around the country. Explain your overall appraisal and what you think the role should be of these sorts of campaigns within a larger labor movement. Is there a role for these more minority and symbolic strikes? Yes. And I think it's a great question to ask. And I I, also, I definitely think that there are times when I get misinterpreted of being, you know, sort of anti-minimum wage increase, right, which, of course, is not true. So, uh, but I think it is complicated. So on the one hand, we would never win franchise by franchise. So what was smart about or what has been smart about the Fight for 15 campaign is, A, it was bold and big, and B, it understood that we could not win, you know, little restaurant by little restaurant, little franchise by little franchise. So, like, that was the strength of the fight for 15 work to date, having a bold idea and moving a bold idea. And so we should congratulate, you know, SEIU for actually putting a lot of money um, into a big idea. And that is something that they're capable of doing. On the other hand, what they're also capable of doing, unfortunately, is not involving workers in the decisions or the strategy. Um, and, And then not seeing workers as central to the strategy. So If you step back and look at how much money they put into that campaign, the overwhelming majority of that money, which is in the many millions, many millions, went to one public relations firm named Berlin Rosen. So if you say to a group of progressive organizers, if you have $50 million to spend, what's the best use of that money? given the current climate and the current environment that we're in, the idea that it would be written over to big public relations firms to do something that frustrates the hell out of me, and I think is confusing (laughs) our movement, called narrative change, which is not a strategy. It's a tactic, okay? So we have to get clear, like, what's a strategy and what's a tactic? narrative change, which is some fancy, stupid new word for, frankly, just doing good messaging, (laughs) has been 
like, like people actually talk about it like it's a strategy. Like when you literally say to people these days, how do you think we're going to win? They're like, well, we're investing in narrative change. I'm like, well, what the fuck did narrative change ever? Anyway, so. I just had an interview with Jonathan Matthew Smucker about his book, Hegemony How To, where he makes the same critique of Occupy, where they did a great job with the tactic of narrative change, but were con- yeah. but mistook it for a strategy. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of references Someone should put he and I together someday because people frequently will, you know, talk about both his book and my recent books, uh, you know, for agreeing on that point, right? That like, what's the difference? First of all, if we start with the power structure analysis, like what's your theory of power? What's a credible plan to win? Um, And then from that, you start to figure out what's strategy and what's a tactic. And there's so much confusion over this in our movement today um, it makes me crazy, which is, you know, part of why I keep talking about power, power structure analysis, the theory of the win, and that we're not going to do it without putting workers front and center. And that's going to involve strikes, right? It's not that having an aspirational goal of raising the floor, raising the minimum wage wasn't a good idea. It was. It's that it didn't require the kind of money that got put into it. And it's inexcusable to put those kind of resources into a campaign where most of the resources didn't have to do with radically educating workers or putting them in charge or developing their leadership, but rather went to a bunch of big PR firms, namely one big PR firm. It's just not a good use of the kind of resources that were spent on the campaign. And one last thing I have to say about it is there's a huge debate that I think we don't have enough right now about the value of sort of minimum wage increases versus the value of the way we used to understand and the way some of us still do understand a better way to raise the floor, which is by digging into really hard fights in strategic labor markets and winning them through good old-fashioned union muscle and where workers take the lead. So, you know, one approach is raising the floor. I just don't think that's the best one. The other approach is how do we raise standards labor market by labor market in strategic labor markets? That's a different theory of how you raise the floor. I'm going to argue historically and in the present moment that a labor market approach that puts workers at the center and involves massive strikes and huge work with the community is a faster, more effective route to both raise the floor and raise the ceiling at the same time. And honestly, $15 is not what I want to live on. I don't think it's what you want to live on. And I bet no one listening on this program wants to live on it. So part of me is like, blah. And it's not helping in a broader discussion about things like the Green New Deal, where, frankly, for workers who are winning, who have long won decent unionized wages, uh, which are more like 35 and 40 bucks an hour, plus a pension and health care, it's like a doggy downer for them to listen to, we're going to fight for 15 Like, it's actually not helpful in a bunch of our discussions for well-unionized sectors to hear the aspirational goal we're going to put 50 and $60 million into a campaign for is going to yield 15 with no benefits and no pension. I don't think so. That's not even enough to pay for, that's not even enough to pay for rent in New York or half the cities where they've won it. It's thought of as a horizon expanding move to talk about 15 an hour, but you're saying that in some contexts, it's a horizon limiting one. In a lot of contexts, I actually think it's a horizon-limiting one. Um, so for the, for the very lowest-wage sector, it's a boost. And there's no question that, you know, winning – and look, most of these are not going to 15 anytime soon. So that's the other thing that frustrates right, right. me. In, in a real conversation, one campaign only, one fifteen. 
That was the campaign led by Jonathan Rosenblum at the Seattle airport. It was the first campaign. It was run by smart left-wing people who were uninvited from the union after they won, by the way, like a lot of us. And that campaign mattered because they won benefits with it, because it was comprehensive, and because when they won 15, it went to 15 immediately. The rest of these things they're winning are like, Phasing in 15 with no benefits by 2020, 2022, 2024, 2026, when the value of 15 is going to already slip back to more like 12. So if we get real about the discussion, that's where the frustration comes in. Uh, but I get equally frustrated when people act like, oh, McAlevey is not in favor of raising the floor. Of course I am. It's just what are the priorities for the movement? And that's that's what I try and get at in the critique of that particular campaign. I want to ask about how to do what you're talking about with the labor movement as it exists now. Many unions, of course, aren't, as we're speaking, in a position to strike, either because they don't have the power or because they don't have the right opportunity at this particular moment, or in many cases, maybe both. But every union does need the power and capacity to carry out a strike successfully. How does a union build its strike muscle outside of those particular historical moments that are truly ripe for a winning strike? I mean, I think the first thing is, frankly, political will. Like, you have to wake up in the morning and decide, we're going to become a strike-ready union. So what does it mean to become a strike-ready union, right? To be, so first, you have to decide that. Um, and I would say that I have had the pleasure for two decades plus in the labor movement of, you know, working with unions who understood that being strike ready was the smartest thing that we could do. They didn't all start out that way, right? And in fact, the story I tell in my first book, In Raising Expectations, is a story of the one I was involved in of rebuilding a moribund, do nothing, mildly corrupt local union into a fighting union. And frankly, it took us two years. So it doesn't take that long. So first thing is you have to have the political will. The second is that you have to actually go from having leadership, like leadership matters, forget horizontalism, that's another tired, useless discussion, like leadership actually matters in our movement. And just like it matters in terms of who's running the, you know, damn country. So <laughs> you have to have the leadership that matters. You have to have a leadership vision that says, how are we going to exercise the greatest power possible? Well, it, in the trade union sector, there's one answer, right? I mean, again, voting voting is a part of that, but that comes after you build the kind of robust organization that can first use its most effective and immediate weapon, which is the strike and standing up and using the strike. So, so one is political will. And in most of the unions where the strike muscle has been rebuilt in the last, let's say, 10 years, it mostly in the sort of post-PATCO world, right, in the, it, 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 like the re-rise of the strike in the last decade has mostly come when there's a dire, dire threat, meaning in the case of education, uh, Rahm Emanuel was going to close down, you know, another bazillion schools in Chicago, in Los Angeles, um, in, the, in the recent teacher strikes. But even in the lead up to them, right, the, the fastest spread of charter schools in the nation was happening in Los Angeles. So the, the very institution of education, public education, was at threat in both cities. Same with West Virginia, and we can go on and on. So it, and, and even in Nevada, in the case where we built a strike muscle in a union that had never had one. I mean, we, we actually led in 2000, 
1996, we led the first ever hospital strikes in the state of Nevada, right? In a right-to-work state, people were like, their heads were spinning when we first did it. How can you do that in a right-to-work state? Blah, blah, blah. They had never been on strike there. I mean, they'd been on strike in the casinos, right? But they had not been on strike in the healthcare sector. So how do we do it? We basically did what we call framing the choice. Look, you can either, in the case of the hospital workers, you can either continue to grovel with your bosses, have really poor wages, have really crap benefits, essentially pay <laughs> the workers who led the first hospital strikes in Nevada were nurses, by the way, who were paying, this is $2,006, who were paying, who were having $440 a month deducted from their wages for their healthcare plan, healthcare workers. Uh-huh. So I kept casually pointing out to the nurses, you know, the casino workers don't pay a dime for their healthcare. And the nurses would be like, well, why don't the casino workers pay for their health care? And I'd be like, because they strike the shit out of the casino industry. How about it, girls? Really? So <laughs> you know, if we paint the choice really clear, you can either continue to pay 40 bucks a month from your wages for your health care, or you can decide to do something about it. That's what organizers call framing the hard choice. Um, and framing the hard choice is kind of what we have to do all over the country, if not the world at this point, right? Like we're facing really hard choices. So for organizers, instead of feeling dismal about bleakness that appears to be all around, we sit around and think to ourselves, how can we make the choice really clear so that workers themselves, right, because workers actually have to make the choice to have a strike, and they have to make the choice to rebuild their union, and they have to make the choice to have a robust strike-ready union. It's about a series of educational conversations that start with Things just actually like the example I just gave you, like literally the healthcare workers in Nevada, until we began to educate them, and how did we do it? We brought casino workers in to stand up at meetings with healthcare workers and say, We don't pay a dime for our healthcare. How come you do and your healthcare workers? Like it's a pretty simple, effective educational method, right? Like literally trot in some casino workers in the casino workers union and have them tell the story about how they went to paying zero for their health care to thousands of nurses who were delivering those casino workers health care most days of the week and paying 440 bucks a paycheck for it. You know, you have to have the political will to do it, and then you have to lay out a smart, progressive internal education, internal organizing opportunity that begins to frame the hard choices so that workers will make real choices. And in my experience, anytime we offer workers real choices, they make really good decisions um, about what to do. And part of what, you know, the term credible plan For me, it's about framing the hard choice and offering a credible plan and the kind of plan that workers themselves will then dig into, roll up their sleeves and make even better because once they buy into it, they're going to make it a better plan and then they're going to be at the center of it, right? That's that's how unions can transform from being moribund to being strike ready. I want to talk about some of those unions that have become strike ready, like the teachers unions in Los Angeles and Oakland, which like Chicago were taken over by militant left-wing rank-and-file caucuses. For the labor movement to become the movement that it needs to be, will such left takeovers need to take place in a lot more unions? In other words, is the current union leadership in many unions up for the task at hand? I think it's a good, fair, but also a hard question. Um, And it may be it may be a little bit too generic uh, in, in in the breadth of it to try and answer it, because there's two things that are true. One is obviously it can happen a lot faster when you've got progressive leaders leading with a vision that says it's time for an all-out fight to defend everything we have, and not just defend it, but make it better again, right, which they've done in the places that you just listed. Um, 
But I think that in my own experience working as a senior organizer, like first at the national AFL-CIO 25, oh my God, seven years ago, um, you know, I worked with a ton of unions where the dynamic that I just described to you in Nevada was true, meaning, I mean, in Nevada, there was no um, worker, militant minority worker caucus that took over, right? There were simply, in our case, there were simply a handful of people brought in. In my, in my case, I was hired as the executive director of a statewide union. And as soon as I got there, I began to do what I was just saying to you, which was frame a series of hard choices. So it's better, I think, if you have the kind of potentially durable um, leadership shift that happened in Los Angeles and that happened in Chicago and that really recently just happened in Oakland. But there are, you know, if you look at the Verizon strike in that happened in New York two years ago, that was an amazing strike, right? And that was not because of some takeover by um, a militant minority inside the union. That's just a smart union. And in a state that the, the strike was grounded in a state where where they have some power and grounded by some leadership that understands strikes and power. So I don't, I don't think it's that simple. And I think if we, I think if we write off the vast majority of unions and assume that the the kind of, that that getting strike ready is dependent on sort of militant minority takeovers, I, I, I think that that's narrowing the scope of what we need to imagine right now in a serious way. So it's like both end plus, Again, since workers uh, learn to strike by watching workers strike and win, it's like an additive process that's happening right now. So, for example, officially, the leadership in West Virginia, right, of the two teachers unions, by the way, we shouldn't just say teachers, of the education union, the bus drivers and the service workers are really crucial. None of the people who held the positions, what I call position holders, in the three unions in West Virginia that, you know, got to 100% out strike, None of those position holders came from a, you know, a, a sort of radical caucus. They didn't. They didn't win election and take over the unions. It was, but it was led by by a movement from below that didn't need to change the position holders. In the case of West Virginia, now there are some particular reasons why that was the case. But like, it did take progressive radicals from the base leading, but they didn't need to take over to do it. They actually just needed to force the union to act like a union and stand up and do what it needed to do, which is strike the crap out of a bunch of you know, red, trifecta, red, conservative state lawmakers. So if we got into the details of each one of them, they're, they're slightly different. Chicago and Los Angeles are the most similar and in some ways, frankly, the most profound. So that's encouraging. But I think that if we went, if we went strike by strike in the last couple of years, we would find plenty of exceptions to the rule that we would begin to realize we can get to a more robust strike-ready sort of union movement again uh, without you know, every local being taken over. I guess that's my point. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. 
Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. In Oakland, the Reform Caucus had taken over just six months before the strike, unlike in L.A. where the new, more militant leadership had, had years to build power and develop their membership and prepare them. How did this difference shape the strike's outcomes? I read an article by Daniel Rowland at Commune, which called Oakland's a, quote, ambiguous victory because, quote, a contract that fell short of expectations approved by just 58 percent of the union membership. And specifically, he writes that the contract puts a moratorium on school closures rather than blocking them, which is what would be necessary to stop charterization. And he writes that the wage increase is so small that it amounts to a pay cut given the rising cost of living in the Bay Area. Did did do you think that leadership cut the strike too short and in doing so cut off teacher militancy at the knees? I don't buy that critique. It's really hard as hell to run a strike. I mean, it is hard as hell. And they had, as you pointed out, not very much time to get ready for it. Um, quite frankly, it was essential that UTLA, that the Los Angeles teachers had just won, and that they were able to shift a bunch of both rank and file on staff support into Oakland to help right on the heels of their victory in Los Angeles, like that mattered. So I think it does matter that there was far less preparation time in Oakland. I, as just a, you know, a union analyst, an analyst of power and strategy, I was nervous about Oakland before it happened because they had so recently won key positions inside of the union and because they had really just committed to like, it's going to take some serious effort to win. So I, I actually think what they did was remarkable given the lack of time they had. I think what they actually pulled off in Oakland was remarkable. And every time I hear someone spouting off that, you know, someone ended a strike prematurely, at least when it comes to the education strikes, it's just generally wrong. I mean, people said that about West Virginia. People said that about Los Angeles. People said that about, you know, I was in Los Angeles literally for the 24 hours where I was, and I'm happy to talk about, like, you know, there were, there were a handful of leftists immediately, right, criticizing the Los Angeles settlement for the first 24 hours after it. And that was just insane. That was just insane. I mean, the victory was tremendous. So, so in Oakland, the, te- the new leadership of that teachers union did something that no one imagined they could have done even a year earlier. So congratulations to them. They did it with way too little prep time. The fact that they pulled it off was remarkable and was, again, in part due to what had just happened in Los Angeles. So could they have won more? No. The question is, how could they have won more? Like what I want people like that person who are writing critical pieces to ask. So you you, you go in charge, whoever he is. I want to ask him, you're in charge, dude. What are you doing? Like the table, the discussion's not changing. You're not actually getting the boss to do anything at the table. Like having run really hard strikes, listening to, you know, quarterback sideline people who have never like organized much of anything, let alone trying to actually hold together a massive strike. It just, it defies understanding sometimes. So 
again, I wasn't here enough to go toe-to-toe with, with that argument, but I just on the surface don't buy it. I think they had very little time. I congratulate them for what they did pull off. It's a smaller district, which is why they could pull it off. Would it have been nice had they won more? Hell yes. Like, do you think the leadership didn't want to win more? There's a moment where when you're leading a strike, again, better for people who have actually run them to make this kind of commentary. Like, there's a moment in a strike when you have to understand when you're about to start going backwards. Like, you can start losing power. And as a strategist, you need to be able to gauge the power analysis of that moment, and you better cut it off before you start going backwards. And that's not just a pr- exact science, but also a bit of an art, I imagine. Yeah, although, I mean, it's it's art, but to be honest, it's a lot of science, too. Um, I just mean it's hard to determine in the middle of, the middle of like, a— No, no, <laughs> yeah. no, it's not. You're counting your lines. You're counting your numbers. You're counting the crosses. You're count—no, there, there's—no. <laughs> this is really hard science. Like, if you're doing your work right— there are, there are credible, measurable assessments that we're making every hour of every day during a strike. And that's real. And that's why it's always complicated for me to read often ultra-left criticism after a strike from people who have never had to grapple with, what are the numbers coming in today? How are we doing? How's the energy? Are we about to start going backwards? Are people going to start crossing? Is the community about to turn on us? Will the parents turn on us? Like, these are huge issues, and they're not insurmountable. But having taken over that union so recently, again, I, I want to just, yeah. at the end of the day, congratulate them for what they did pull off. And I hope that that person and every critic of that strike has been knee-deep building the structure since the day the strike ended instead of just complaining about it, because that's what it takes to win bigger next time. We win in relationship to the power we build. We win in relationship to the power we build. Let's talk more about L.A. On my colleague Doug Henwood's show, you talked about the teacher strike there as a case in point, really a model for your structure test argument. A master class. Yes. Uh, Unions, as you argue, have to deepen membership participation and ownership over their union and over the fight. And that commitment, as we discussed earlier, has to be tested multiple times in the lead up to the strike. What did UTLA do? do so well? What sort of critical years-long work did they put in to make such a powerful and effective strike possible? I know this is like your favorite question. (laughs) It is, because they did so many things right. You know, that's why I'm calling it a master class. It really is a master class, and it's a beautiful thing that we have it. So, um, you know, first of all, uh, there were um, eight, they did eight actual structure tests, right, over a four-year period. So, but if you back it up, I mean, what they did was, that's an example where, first of all, you know, a team of very smart, very progressive radicals inside the union at some point just said, okay, time's up, enough here. Like, we need to actually try and, in their case, um, actually replace the position holders at that time and get control of the union and begin to steer it differently. Okay, so they did that. That's 2014. That's the union power slate. They're brilliant. They're really, it's, just a, it's just a team of great, you know, look, out of 34,000, Imagine this, out of 34,000 educators, there's going to be thousands who are really smart, right? These are people who are teaching our kids. So it's such a nice environment to to build in. So they win in 2014, uh, and essentially they campaigned on, the progressive slate called Union Power campaigned on building a real organizing department, which the union never, ever had. So within four months of taking office, they actually hired 
their first organizing director, and they began to build their organizing department. And this speaks to what I call this question of this issue of the interaction effect between smart radicals and the rank and file, then knowing enough to hire experienced, skilled organizers who have actually done this work before, right? Because there is, as we were just discussing, there's a lot of science to it, not just art. So they committed to hire and hire a real organizing director and build a real organizing department, and they did that. And from that moment forward, they began to collectively make a plan, step-by-step, structure test-by-structure test, to start with the most basic thing that organizers do, which is let's get a baseline assessment. Let's figure out what the ownership and participation is right now of the union. Let's actually try and do something union-wide, meaning across, in their case, 900 schools, and let's create a mechanism that allows us to literally school-by-school assess participation. That's what a structure test is. And if you don't do them, then you can't even get a baseline. It's like, can you actually be, can you actually have methods and systems that measure this stuff? And the answer is yes. So they began right off the bat by understanding that they had to do an early structure test to just even, like, they had to build lists. They didn't even have credible lists. Like, they didn't have a school-by-school list. They didn't even know how many stewards and delegates they had in the schools. Like, and and this is typical of a lot of unions right now, right? If, you, if you're not planning on getting strike ready, you simply haven't done the hard work to figure out what it takes to get strike ready. That's why it goes back to having the political will to do it. So, so they didn't, so you have to start at the most basic level. Like you literally, I could walk into a bunch of unions right now and be like, do you have a list of all the stewards or the, the shop floor stewards or the delegates facility by facility? And do you have a comprehensive current accurate list of every worker who works in that facility? The answer is going to be no at most unions. That's just a fact. So, and maybe because of Janice and because at least in the public sector, a whole bunch of unions, not all of them, but a whole bunch of unions started to figure out, uh-oh, you know, we actually have to do this work too because they're going to start losing their members if they're not talking to them, right, post-Janus. So there's, there's more unions who in theory have done this work recently, um, in part because they were proactively getting ready for a strike or defensively getting ready for the Janus decision. So you have to start by literally building a list. And it sounds crazy, but this is not crazy. It's real. So, And then you have to start to, once you build the list, start to test the participation rate. And it's in the early participation test that you're actually rebuilding your list every time because you actually have to rebuild your list because it's bad when you start. So in their case, they began to do, when the union power team slate one office in Los Angeles, they were midway through um, contract negotiations. So there was a transition of leadership during the contract negotiations. So when they won and then they hired their organizing director, who began to lay out the kind of stuff I was just describing, right? Do we have a list? How do we know what the participation rates are? They decided that the first structure test was going to be a February um, 2015 citywide rally. They were going to call for a citywide rally to try and move the debate about the contract that they inherited, like the contract talks that they were in the middle of when they, when they won positions in the union. And I remember literally back in late fall of 2014 when they – when they, when, you know, when they were talking amongst union organizers in California and they were saying, look, we're going to go for an all-out rally. They hadn't tried to do a citywide rally with a benchmark of like, you know, can we get half the union to show up? Like half. That was a, that was a huge objective for a union that had not tried to pull off a rally with thousands of people at it in many years, sadly, um, which again is the state of many of our unions today. So, so the first structure test was they went all out and they only had a few months to do it. 
to drive towards a massive citywide rally. And if I if I have my number right off the top of my head, they hit just over 15,000, meaning they hit bare majority of the rank and file workers, and they were going all out to hit that number. So once they had their first structure test and they knew what it took, they learned a lot from that very first structure test. And the union, the progressive new union leadership knew that they had to win something. They had to show real product from winning the union offices across the board, which they did. So that the, the power of the 15,000 teacher rally in Los Angeles in early 2015 was actually enough power to get the contract done with a bare minimum victory, but it was massive for them at the time, which was they won a 10% raise. They won nothing else, by the way. But this is like the real history of the struggle. They won a 10% raise, and those teachers hadn't seen a big raise in years. So they pull off one big raise. That's about all they could win, right, with the power they had at the time. A really big, fat raise. They didn't change class sizes. They, you know, all the things that they just won, none of that was touched in, the, in their first contract settlement, which was in, I think, June of 2015. But when they won the 10% raise, which was, you know, it began to raise workers' expectations in Los Angeles. Hey, we won 10% with one rally with 15,000 teachers which is just not quite half of them. So they thought, okay, that's what raising expectations is. Imagine what we could do if we had 34,000 workers participating and we actually got strike ready, which is how the conversation turned. The very next thing they did after winning the 10% raise in terms of their second big structure test was they took an honest conversation to the rank and file and said, we won 10%. Want to do better? This is the framing the choice thing. Want to do better? We actually have to like quadruple our dues and hire a bunch of organizers and build a research team, which we've never had, strategic research team, hire more union staff, build a communications department, um, and build a parent community organizing department. So they had to build four new departments across the union. And in order to do that, they had to win a huge dues increase. So their second big structure test was actually a dues increase vote, right? Which was a very hard test and they had no choice. So so, so it began. So, I mean, you can look at, and that's the same thing we had to do in Nevada years earlier. I mean, it's literally, the stuff is, it's not rocket science. It's hard. And we're not going to win against Trump or neoliberalism or any damn thing else that's going on in this country or the world unless we're willing to roll up our sleeves and do that kind of hard work. But it is, there is almost a formula to it. That's where the science of the organizing work comes in. And it's real. So that, you know, so then they had their second structure test under their belt, and they continued to build from there. And they just did structure test after structure test after structure test until they knew that they were going to be ready for 100% outstrike. You mentioned the Supreme Court's Janus decision, which was, of course, squarely aimed at debilitating public sector unions. Looking back nine months out, what do you see the impact as having been? Certainly not what the right wing had their fantasy about, meaning a fair amount of unions actually did get ready, you know, as ready as they could. And boy, nothing like a little bit of dialogue over the course of a year, a year and a half with the rank and file and actually, to actually put the hard question at them, right? So we've seen from New York State to Washington to California, I mean, there has been a well-funded right-wing effort, not just at the level of funding the Janus case in the courts, but there's been a well-funded, actually staffed with like professional full-time canvassers going door-to-door in key states from Massachusetts to New York to, to Washington State to California, like actually door knocking. 
with lists of public sector workers because they can get them. Well, they, in some states, they've stopped that now, thankfully. The progressive states like California passed a law saying like they, you can't just get the list of workers anymore. But, but that was a reaction to Janice. So I think the news is good, which is that most workers are not dropping, quote unquote, or not abandoning, you know, their own self-organization and dropping their union membership in their unions. And and if you look at Los Angeles, boy, what another what another good lesson learned about how to defeat Janus, which was their strike. They're at ninety-six percent of all teachers paying voluntarily into the union. It's it's similar to what we saw play out in Chicago when the Illinois state legislature raised the bar for a strike authorization vote and CTU took 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 the challenge head on and said, yeah, we're going to crush that that number. <laughs> no, that's right. And look, and, 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 and in Nevada, again, I mean, it's like reaching back into my old history. But, you know, I mean, we got the union from minority is a gentle word on a good day to like super majority membership in a right to work state long before Janice, long before any of this stuff, because turns out that when workers own their union and participate, they make the decision to not just pay dues, but to also pay into their political funds and a whole lot more, right? Like that's the question between do workers own their union or not? And when they do uh, and when they participate and when their voice is really heard and their decisions are really, and the decision, the key to, as my mentor, Jerry Brown, not the governor of California, but (laughs) my old mentor from 1199 New England, as Jerry Brown always said to me, it's not hard to figure out if the workers are making the key decisions in the union if the workers are making the key decisions in the union, then in fact they're going to be paying their dues no matter whether it's voluntary or not. And that that was a wrap and a lesson he gave to me as I was leaving the comfort um, of union security clauses as a young organizer in the Northeast and moving out to right-to-work states in the early 2000s. And it was all true. And the more strikes we had in Nevada and the more militant and the more the more we wound up militant. Now, the word militant makes me crazy because – the point about a strike and the point about real direct action in the workplace, it's not about being militant for militant's sake. It's about winning. And when workers win, their expectations are raised and they get more and more bought in, right? So a strike seems militant, but you know, we don't run around the workplace when we're taking a strike vote saying, hey, who wants to be happy shit militant? We say like, hey, who wants to win? And when workers decide to win, you know, it often can involve a strike, which then appears to be this militant thing. But, you know, we're not leading with militancy. We're leading with winning. In my defense, I just meant it as a shorthand for strike-ready and oriented unions. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I, I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not confusing your, uh, your use of the word. I'm, I'm speaking to a piece of the left, as it were. I want to talk about private sector unions. I wonder how you appraise private sector strikes in recent years. CWAs against Verizon, Unite Here's against Marriott, nurses against various hospitals and the current UE strike of Erie locomotive manufacturing workers against Wabtec. How do they compare to teacher strikes as structure tests and, and in terms of what they tell us about the the labor movement right now? Well, I mean, they're all encouraging signs. And I think, yeah. I think that really encouraging. And I think the CWA strike at Verizon did not get nearly enough attention. I think the Marriott strike did not get, not get enough attention. Um, I think they're, I think they're both really important strikes. And I think you know, look, Unite here, part of why the Marriott strike is so important, and it's different than the Erie strike, and it's different than, right, they're all a little bit different. Part of part of what makes the Marriott strike in particular, going back to the question you asked about the fight for 15, just as an example, what it's a really big contrast. So here you've got low-wage workers, right? What, what, the, what the academic sector, what the academic literature that shocked me said, you know, when I walked into the academy in, in the year 2010 was 
low-wage workers in today's economy cannot take on multinational corporations and win. Like, period. Like, that was, that, there's a lot of literature that says that. And I remember pulling it into my academic job, meeting my academic moment in life, which began in 2010 and ended in 2015, and thinking to myself, what the hell is all this literature talking about, right? Like, if you build enough power, you can win. And that's hotly debated. So part of what's so important about the Marriott strike is it was low-wage workers taking on a giant multinational corporation. So this was not nurses, right? This was not teachers. It was not sort of the quote-unquote as society deems it, uh, skilled workers, it was workers who are easily replaced, quite frankly. Um, and a lot of Latina and, and people of color and immigrant workers literally going up against the largest hotel corporation in the world, and they clean their clock. So I think the Marriott strike is hugely important. And it's not from nothing that they got the idea and the strength and the confidence to do it, right? This is the same union that when I talk about using the casino workers in Las Vegas as an example for the nurses and the healthcare workers in Las Vegas many years ago, you know, D. Taylor, who's the head of Unite here right now, uh, helped re- help rebuild, again, a, a, a moribund union that was on the Vegas trip when he and, and a guy named John Wilhelm got there many years ago. They took a union that was in terrible shape in the casino industry, culinary, and they rebuilt it. And they rebuilt it in not too many years, just like Chicago, just like Los Angeles, just like SEIU in Nevada. I mean, we could just go example for just like Oakland is beginning to do now. I mean, we could go example for example. It's not hard to convert a moribund union into a really dynamic, good one really fast if that's what you're setting out to do, because workers are ready to do it. So, you know, the Marriott workers had only to listen to and look at the very same kind of immigrant worker base working for giant multinational corporations in, in, in Las Vegas, and to hear stories from the Vegas casino workers saying, we stuck together, we strike, we win, and giving that lesson to the Marriott workers in their own union. And the Marriott workers did it, right? So building on the foundation of a union that already knew how to run strikes. It's really impressive. One interesting thing going on in private sector labor along those lines is the Count Me In campaign in New York. And it is being led by, of all sectors, the building trades, traditionally considered the most conservative, exclusionary segments of the labor movement. But in New York, developers are increasingly relying on non-union labor in what has been a stronghold of the building trades. And unions have been losing density big time because of long-running anti-labor political power and also construction firms being absorbed into these enormous multinationals. And this fight emerged around the construction of Hudson Yards, this massive taxpayer-funded, just huge development on the west side of Manhattan, and became a flashpoint. Has, has this campaign, which is taking place in the context of an increasingly diverse building trades workforce, does it seem like an important development to you? Has it been? Is it something that you see that could move the building trades beyond their reputation for inflatable rats and narrow trade-based self-interests? First of all, I hope so. Um, And it seems like it might. But I also want to just back up for a minute and say, I think we err when we allow sort of the rat, which always makes me crazy personally, (laughs) right? You you couldn't pay me to blow up an inflatable rat in a million years. So, but like, I think we err when we think that that is what defines, when we let either the rat 
or the worst elements of the building trades to find who the building trades are, because the building trades have a really radical, strong tradition in this country. And talk about an important strategic sector. I mean, it's the one sector that will never be offshored, right? You're not building a building from like Myanmar. So it's an incredibly important sector. And I haven't looked enough at the Cambian campaign. I am aware of it. I think it sounds great. It looks good. But but I am aware on a different but related topic that the building trades, for example, in New York are participating in the climate jobs campaign, which frankly just scored a really big victory. And that's really important. So and, and uh, back to Las Vegas for a minute. There were three unions. When I when I was leading a union in Nevada, there were three unions. Clearly the culinary, meaning the, the, the hotel workers, the casino workers, was the most dynamic and the most powerful. And they, they had begun their rebuild process many years before I got there. So they were already a rebuilt union. The second union that got rebuilt in Las Vegas in you know, realizing that there was a huge robust economy happening there was the Carpenters Union. And the person who headed up that union at the time, Mark Furman, who headed up the Southwest Regional Council of Carpenters, was an absolutely visionary and brilliant uh, trade union leader. They would strike the strip. The carpenters did strike the strip. They integrated Mexican-American workers and Mexicans and Latinos, like super big campaign to do citizenship and, and bring in undocumented workers into the union. That was happening in, in the Carpenters Union in New England when I was working in Connecticut back in the last century. I just think there are plenty of examples every day of the week where we've got IBW in a bunch of places, like where you've got really smart, progressive building trades unions. So one thing is for us to do is not just not to paint them with a brush. That's the problem with unions. It's such a complicated chessboard. But at any given moment, there are great building trades um, leaders in different pockets all across the country. So hell yes, count me in sounds great. But I've I have in 25 years in the labor movement, I've worked with building trades leaders who were second to none, um, who believed in strikes, who struck, um, who break the race barrier, who break the gender barrier, the the work to bring women in, um, in Boston. Who break the trade barrier, the trade-based barrier as well, right? Because they, they often, too often cross each other's picket lines. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's all those kind of complications, right? Like, oh, solidarity, whatever. But But there have always been and still are some really dynamic um, leaders in the building trades. And we, as a progressive movement, need to help lift them up and give them more credit where credit is due. And there's all sorts of creative stuff they're doing. God, in the OP- did you? there was an article in the New York Times. I swear it's so worth everyone reading if most people just missed it. Because it was like a story about the opioids crisis last summer that actually blew my mind uh, for a lot of reasons. One is realizing the scale of the opioid crisis. But in this huge spread of the New York Times, you had to get near the end of it. It was like a five-section, five-part section thing, huge, one of those huge Sunday things. And you get to the end of it, sort of a straight-up article about the opioid crisis, and you get near the end of it, and this reporter, who's clearly not someone who's reported on unions because she's reporting on yeah. the healthcare crisis of opioids, and comes to the conclusion that the single smartest people in the United States when it came to healthcare and the opioid crisis were all of the people running the health and welfare funds of America's building trade unions. It's an incredible article that shows the smart and the ingenuity of what a worker led, meaning a Taft Hartley, because in building trades, they still have enough power to have their own health care plans, that productivity, days lost, and really compassionate, really humane, and really effective solutions to the opioid crisis were being seen in one place, which was building and construction trade unions, health and welfare funds. Man, that's an impressive Anyone who's tackling 
that kind of an issue because it's huge in building trades, right? They fall, they get injured, um, they go to the doctor and they get prescribed. It's like it's like looking at NFL players or something. They get prescribed a bunch of opioids and they put them back on the job, right? But meanwhile, it's yeah. actually the health and welfare funds that are doing the most cutting edge work. And 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 the point is solving it, like doing cutting edge work, which. You know, you don't hear idiot Trump talking about that, but it's actually true, right? <laughs> and one of the most important crises in this country, the building and construction trade unions are solving a really urgently needed problem um, with their own rank and file members and their families. And it's, it's, it's incredibly important. So, so that's happening every day with the building trades, right? So, yeah, I, I think the building trades matter a lot. And I'm probably a little bit biased because that's the family lineage I come out of. Um, on my father's side, it's like several generations of Irish building trade union leaders in New York. But so they've always, you know, I mean, I grew up in a house where, where we understood that the union is what saved the family through the depression and beyond. But so, yeah. You just mentioned climate jobs, but I wanted to ask you about the Green New Deal. I know you have an article coming out soon in Jacobin. It might already be out by the time this interview airs. There was just a letter from building trades and other unions opposing it. What's going on there? And how do you see the next steps in terms of building the unity that really has to be built? That's just an utterly necessary um, that needs to be built between labor and environmentalists? Yeah. The first thing that matters is the letter, the now infamous letter uh, that was issued on AFL, you know, CIO letterhead officially, which the Washington Post um, was the first to blow up and blow it out of proportion, in my own opinion. Um, the letter itself... Because it was not from the entire AFL-CIO, well, which one... Yeah, it's definitely not... It's not. On the other hand, it kind of is because it is a sanctioned committee. The Energy Committee mm-hmm. is actually a sanctioned committee. Um, but but more importantly, when I when I finally went and downloaded the letter later the day when it first broke and read it, if you read the letter, if you read the letter itself, which is different than the headlines that it generated, if you read the letter itself, it doesn't say it opposes the Green New Deal. <laughs> it says we need to be at the table, and we weren't invited to it. And we're not going to be able to get to the scale that we need until our voices are heard in this debate. So first of all, the letter itself is not nearly as cataclysmic as it sounded, and that matters. Now, second of all, that doesn't mean I'm going to give the people who wrote that letter a pass, right? Like, they had to know that when they wrote it, it was going to go in the hands of the fossil fuel industry and the Koch brothers and the evil lobbyists, and that they were going to run right to the New York Times and Washington. You know, like, they had to understand a little bit when they were writing it that it was going to wind up generating the headlines it wrote. So not such a great move. They could have decided to not write the letter um, and instead come up with their own solutions to the Green New Deal, right, which is one option that they could have done was like, instead of just complain, just get into it and do it themselves. So, but when you read the letter, all it says is, hey, we need to be at the table. And the truth is they do need to be at the table. My slight complaint about it is, you know, what are you writing letters about it for? Just go, go help make your own table. And that's part of what I just finished writing about is, there's a really good example in New York about this, going back to New York for a minute, which is, is a climate jobs coalition and a climate jobs campaign in New York that's 100% union-made and 100% union-led, and that just scored a really big, important victory. That's going to half the state of New York, no small state here, we're talking about a major state, it's going to half New York State's reliance on fossil fuels by 2035. It's the most ambitious transition, I think, of any state in this country, bar none, um, that's, actu- that's actually just been approved. And and they won it because the unions took control of the discussion themselves, because they had the power to actually shift the subsidies in New York State, because it's going to take 
you know, I've said this in several places, it's going to take shifting the subsidies away from the fossil fuel industry to the green jobs industry to meet the higher wage and benefit standards that, frankly, workers already have in the fossil fuel sectors and that all workers in this country deserve. That's what I mean, way beyond 15, right? We're talking about really decent jobs. Part of what the fossil fuel industry has done to create the wedge issue that it's been driving since the early 70s is make sure, just like with the building trades, that they actually give these better deals to these workers so that they can use them, they can try and weaponize them on their side in these debates. And to, to make it so that they cannot weaponize workers against their own interests, the environmental movement has never yet ever proven beyond their rhetoric that they can meet that kind of standard. And frankly, they don't have the power to do it right now. So what's interesting to me about the example from New York and the victory that just happened, which is, by the way, a 50 billion, that's a B, not an M. I actually wrote that in the story. It's a B, uh, not a typo. The 50 billion in subsidies that are going to move as part of the package that was just one happened because the unions in 2014 in New York State got together and said, we're sick of the unproductive discussions going on around climate jobs. We're going to have our own damn discussion about it. They rolled up their sleeves. They began meeting in 2014, not in the limelight, right? Not with tem- not with TV cameras. You know, they weren't tweeting about it. They actually got into the room, rolled up their sleeves as unions, and began to do a self-education project among themselves about the climate crisis. And what precipitated it was Hurricane Sandy. So. It's a really interesting story that I just finished writing. And more importantly, forget the story. It's a re- it's actually a really important story in real life of what's happening when when a bunch of unions decide who still have enough power to shift subsidies in one state. It's a really great example of like get the environmentalists who frankly complicate most of these discussions out of the room. Like they don't get it. They get in the way. They lead to a distraction. You know, they barely supported the PLA, as I understand it, in New York. I mean, it's just, it's just, there's so much inexcusable behavior in the so-called environmental movement, which I worked in for many years. And it's, it's part of why I left and just went full-time to the trade union movement, because I thought I'd rather go where workers actually have the capacity and the smarts and the know-how and the power to scale up a real discussion about how we're going to shift this economy. So if we get beyond the, the, the unhelpful headlines uh, I interviewed the head of the New York City uh, Labor Council, and he comes out of IBW originally, and he was so smart in the interview, and he said, you know, in New York, Jane, we just decided to focus on the 90% of the stuff that we could agree on and to move on it and to not get distracted by, like, those occasional big fights that flare up. He's like, we just wanted to move, and they moved, and they're moving, and they have the building trades um, on board with them. They have all the key labor councils throughout the state of New York. They have basically every major private sector union required in the energy, transport, and building construction trade sector, and they are moving. And they issued a brilliant report in 2017 that every single person who hears this should go online and pull down and read. But it's called Reversing Inequality, Combating Climate Change, a Climate Jobs Program for New York State. It's brilliant. Like why that's not getting headlines, I don't know, but it certainly should be. It's not getting headlines because it doesn't create the stupid polarized sell your newspaper headline that the Washington Post inexcusably wrote about that letter from two weeks ago. That's it's really frustrating. You argue that the lesson of needing to win these big supermajorities to win big in strikes carries over into politics as a whole. 
and that the left needs to break out of the Democratic Party, traditional Democratic Party box of nibbling around the edges of swing states and to instead, if I'm reading you right, fight for a major realignment. How do we do this? And what role does the current left upsurge from DSA to the Bernie campaign to Black Lives Matter to the Sunrise Movement to the labor movement, of course, what role do they all play? And how should all these various movements relate to each other? I mean, I think several things. One is, on the one hand, you you have sometimes well-intentioned, well-intentioned, but naive, you know, folks calling for like, calling the unions to break with the Democratic Party. And, you know, it's, that's fine to say. It's not that realistic in the short term, just like the climate question. Like, you can't just take a leap of faith to a promise that you're going to move to a just transition when you have no evidence of doing it, right? So we need to start doing it like they just did in New York. There's a reason that electoral capture works. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> exactly. And so, part, but so, so start, so starting with the union side, I mean, part of what, part of what I argued in a piece that I wrote in, in these times after the midterm elections was um, that you, you could literally pinpoint significant increases in electoral participation from the unions in the states where the big strikes had occurred in 2018. So that's real. So one is part of what's so great about strikes is that because they're building 100% out structure-tested organizations, they can then carry that into the electoral arena. And by the way, in the very hotly contested superintendent of state um, education race that happened in California in 2018, which was won by a, a shin of a, you know, the hair of a chinny chin chin, the final turnout numbers happened. The final numbers that put the progressive superintendent of education in the state of California into the win box versus the lose box has up against a unbelievably well-funded charter school, private sector, right-wing candidate. If you look at the actual numbers and you do the assessment, all of the final turnout that happened like after election day, because it went into a recount, all the key numbers came from Los Angeles. And I think it's pretty clear that you could argue that the strike preparation they were doing, which, which they carried into the polls in November, is why they won that important election, right? So um, and that's also why they just had, you know, 48.2% victory for in, the, in, in round one for Jackie Goldberg in the school board race in Los Angeles, because they, they have now a strike-ready organization, which means they could, in theory, have a, a very effective political organization. So have I always thought, have I always believed that unions need to get out of their own way in the Democratic Party process? Hell yes, right? In the state of Nevada, uh, going back to Nevada and just my real-world experience, but also in Connecticut, right, where I was cutting my teeth doing union work in the last century. Part of what we've always believed, and again, this goes back to the training I got from 1199 New England, was that I don't come, you know, I come from a tradition of a more radical union that taught me that we were going to be willing to get out of the traditional box, that we were going to run our own candidates in Democratic Party primaries in safe districts. So here's, here's really the strategy. It's basically what the Tea Party did to take the Republican Party. And I'm not saying we have to mimic them because, frankly, they were mimicking us. Like, what smart unions have always done is, smart radical unions have always done, is you select safe seat where Democrats going to win. Let's say Crowley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, perfect example. It's a Democratic seat. Because this is Justice Democrats' yeah, strategy. See, but although they were picking ones that weren't, you know, the origins of that were they, they were also picking some that were just Anyway, if you go back and look at what happened from 2016 to 2018, I think there were some errors made where where a lot of money by 
sort of good people who I love was being thrown into races that were just in not winnable seats, right? So first of all, just like with Fight for 15 and priorities, pick your priorities carefully. So so if if I think the Justice Democrats have realigned to have saying we're going to go after safe seats and we're going to primary the crap out of people in them, that's a great plan. So um, you pick safe seats and then you say we're going to run really good people and we're going to see if we can win. Because then there's no actual threat like you're going to win. But when it comes to the unions, what a lot of the newer to the party, meaning small P party here or big P, like newer to the game of electoral politics, people like younger activists and just new activists don't understand when they can't figure out why did some union just re-endorse an incumbent against their sort of outsider candidate. It's like the climate debate. What they don't understand is that that politician that the unions might have just re-endorsed as up against someone else, A, might have been and be crucial to actually their contracts, which, you know, again, asking people to walk away from the handful of allies they have that are helping them win or maintain strong contracts, that's just not a smart strategy. So it isn't just looking for seats where Democrats can win. Leftists who are trying to think about this should also look at where will they find a where will they might where can they narrow it even one down because this, this is a target rich environment right so like how can you narrow it down so that you're not forcing unions into a position to try and peel away from a candidate an incumbent candidate who frankly might be bad on some issues but might be really good on a union question because then you're then you're just dividing yourselves from the unions and that's there's enough races out there not to do that. So that's my pearl of wisdom for the day on that question. But hell yes, of course we should be messing with the primary process. And no, that's not the tradition of most unions. And I'm sorry to say that, but just like it's not the tradition of most unions to figure out how to get strike ready, a lot are figuring out we do have to do this right now. And, you know, the most important thing that people who are activists who are not sitting formally inside of the unions who do still have some electoral muscle and money, the best thing that the activist crowd can do is what I love to talk about is good organizing, which is organize, not just complain, not just kvetch, not just bitch. It's start to build lists, start to figure out every person you know who's inside of a union, start to ask that union person to demand a different kind of endorsement process, like show that you can actually organize. It's not rocket science, but like for community groups or DSA groups or environmental groups or you know, people of color centered groups or women's groups who are, who are what I call the self-selecting groups who are sitting out properly outside of a union structure, they need to start doing the same thing I described that LA teachers were doing. They need to start, they need to build a list, they need to start to have conversations and one-on-ones and group meetings where they start to say to people, who here has a union member in their family? Which one of you is in a union? Which union are you in? Is your husband or wife or kid or aunt or uncle in the union? And start burrowing into the union endorsement process via the rank and file themselves, not by just complaining from the outside. Like, that's just not productive. That brings me very neatly to my, my last question, which is, say you're a young radical right now, a, a profile, incidentally, that I think fits many of my listeners. What should you do if you're this young radical and are committed to the labor movement? One, what type of skills should you be focusing on developing? And two, should radicals be getting rank and file union jobs and getting involved in reform efforts or organizing in the workplaces they already are, or joining unions as staff organizers, or all of the above? All of the above. Oh, my God, for sure, all of the above. Because it's going to take all of the above to actually win, right? So um, I once was a young radical. (laughs) 
many years ago, and I made one decision, right, which was to go out on the staff side. There's plenty of good argument that we also need to go in on the rank and file side. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. So I think, you know, I think it's fair to say we could find plenty of people who went into the rank and file. We've discussed many of the locals on this in this interview already and some of the education unions that did just that, that had a huge impact. And I also know a fair amount of people, myself included, the organizing director at the teachers union, uh, Brian McNamara, like many of us who took the staff approach side and went and got seriously skilled up. We went and if you're going to take the staff side, by the way, you need to find the really good unions and go work for them so that you actually get the experience. Like I wound up working for, I'm going to safely say some of the smartest, most progressive and unions in this country. So I got amazing skill development as a young organizer and it's never failed me, whether I'm running a political campaign in the, in the kind of race we were just discussing, right? Like I've, I've run a lot of political races from the base of the labor movement where we did challenge um, the incumbent. By the way, if you read my first book, you'll realize that, you know, the first big trouble I got in in SEIU was for doing just that back in 2003, right? Was challenging, was working with a big local of ours to challenge some incumbent, some incumbents. So, but we won anyway. So, you know, so I digress. The point is what young radicals need to do is learn how to win. So whether you're going to go on the inside and join a reform effort, I mean, I wouldn't do that willy nilly. You better get some training before you do that. And if you're in an existing workplace that you like, you need to step out and look to places where you can get the kind of skill training and skill development. You need to do some reading. You should start some book groups. That's how it all began in West Virginia. That's how it began in Chicago. That's how it began in Los Angeles. That's how it began in Oakland. So where should a young rank and file person, worker be be looking for for that sort of advice and training? You know, a whole bunch of them recently apparently read No Shortcuts. That was nice to know. Before that, they read Naomi Klein's No Shock Doctrine. I mean, one is you can start doing self-education, right, which is like find the handful of things that you can read. And there's a lot of people doing this already, but, you know, start with the book group. Um, uh, you can go to labor notes. You can go to a handful of books that are not just labor notes. You can now, in a whole bunch of states, go to the labor centers that they have. You can even go to more tra- more traditional community organizing basic training, like basic training. I mean, people could criticize Midwest Academy of Organizing, but it's where I started when I was 17 years old. And the fact that I learned what power analysis was and what strategy was and the difference between a tactic and a strategy at age 17 is because I went to something called the five-day training at Midwest Academy of Organizing. Now, have I, do I think that I've gone well beyond that in my development? Yeah, of course. But like at 17, that was pretty powerful stuff. Like I understood. When I was 18, I was at Union Summer in in Chicago, SEIU local one. Right. So there you go. Right. Like, and by the way, um, many of the staff, many, actually, actually, it is true. Many, you know, many of the staff that I either worked with directly or came to work with me in various campaigns in the last 25 years came out of the union summer in Stanford, Connecticut, where they came to work with me when they were in their teens. I'm not going to name them all, but there's a lot of them. Right. And they're all <laughs> over the labor movement now. So so you need to go to Jobs with Justice. By the way, Jobs with Justice does some really good training. So it's like there are resources out there. The key is this. It does take skill. So get yourself skilled up. And it, it mostly starts with commitment, but it sure does take skill. And the thing I've always said about organizing, I'm always going to say about organizing, it is not rocket science, but it is a skill. And what, 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 the, what the sort of left and, and self-identified radicals don't do enough is get involved 
in win or lose fights with real deadlines and test themselves because you do not know if what you're doing is working, if all you're ever doing is counting turnout at a rally. I don't give a shit about turnout at a rally. I care about can you build a plan and win, something that has a deadline attached to it. And part of what um, I've always loved about the labor movement is a lot of things, but one is we have real deadlines all the time. Every contract is a deadline. Every contract tests our metal. Are the workers participate? And that's what structure tests are, right? So every young, not just young, I mean, everyone who's young for sure, but anyone who's a self-identified radical needs to test their work and figure out if what they're doing is working. And you can't do that unless you start popping off bad Democrats in safe seats, target-rich environment, or start getting involved in your union and start seeing if you can you know, like win a contract and win a really hard fight and win a great contract. So we need more yes or no hard deadline fights um, on the left side of the aisle so that people start to skill up, learn their mistakes, get better, learn more mistakes, get better, um, and make it so that we can win fast because we have until 2030 last I look to save the planet. Jane McAlevey, thank you very much. My pleasure. Jane McAlevey is an organizer, author, and scholar whose books include Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that workers of the world might consider uniting, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's in iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does you telling friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution so that we can keep this podcast going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.